All right, our passage today is John 17, the whole chapter. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now that they know, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the, word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent them. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. If you're, uh, whether you're joining us here or joining us uh, from your home, uh, welcome. We're, we're very happy to have you with us. If it is your first time uh, joining us for worship this morning, uh, we're very excited to have you uh, joining us uh, here this morning. Wherever you're at, um, we hope you're having a great weekend so far. 
So, we have been, like Julie said, we have been in the book of John here for a few months now, and um, we're transitioning into sort of the final act of the book. If you think of it as having kind of three acts, a lot of times movies or books or or plays for sure kind of have three acts, and you have the climactic act that you kind of move into at the end of the book, or or whatever it is, that's what we're getting into right now. That's what we're, we're heading into. And, uh, and John is sort of uh, uh, doing a little bit of a, a setting change or a tone change. So before, Jesus had been in this, this upper room, uh, hanging out with his disciples. He'd been talking with them. But now he goes off to, to kind of pray on his own. And John records for us this prayer that he, he prays before he's about to go to the cross and to his death. Now, in the prayer, and you, which you just heard Julie read, you hear, hear Jesus talking about unity, and that's what we're going to talk about today, unity and diversity within the church. Now, unity is a topic I actually really, really love. I am an Enneagram 9, which for those of you who know, then you know what that means. That's like the peacemaker, I guess. Um, and that means that like uh, Enneagram 9s are like those annoying people who always want everyone to get along. Okay, and I know I bother Julie sometimes when I do that, maybe when she's a little bit more like, but no, we have to do what's right and what's for truth and everything, but um, so I like it when people get along. I really, really get bothered when I feel like people are fighting or not getting along. So I love the idea of, of the church as this, this place that's supposed to be unified, united together, having a common purpose, a common cause, and so we're going to talk about that, that idea of unity, and, and, but also diversity within the church today. I think we want to attack that question uh, head on. And we live in a society that cares a lot about that as well, I think, or about equality, uh, about, about everybody sort of being equal, being seen equal, being able to work together. But I think the way that we talk about it in society oftentimes is we want, and I've heard, I've heard other people talk about this idea of how a lot of times society wants the kingdom, wants, wants what the church gives, wants what Jesus gives, but wants it without the king. It wants the kingdom without the king. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to seek out unity, equality um, with the king at the center. Because that, that's what we are as Christians. We're, we're people who seek out Jesus' agenda with him at the center of it. So that's what we're going to do today as we, as we work through this prayer. So let's get into the beginning again r- real quick here. John 17 uh, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. So like I said, a bit of a tone change here. Jesus is no longer addressing the disciples. He actually leaves the room. And, and you guys, we, we've all been in this place before. Maybe you have a big test the next day. You have a big work project. You have something that you're, you're nervous about. A, big, a really big thing coming up the next day. And you get the night before you try to get some time alone where you can kind of reflect and prepare mentally for what's about to happen. That's what Jesus is doing here. He does it by going and and praying to God to sort of set his heart right for for what is about to happen. And this hour, this hour that people have been waiting for throughout the book, that Jesus has kind of been delaying and saying, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. He's saying here, Father, the hour has come now. Right, it's time to do this thing that w- people have been waiting for, that, that we've been waiting for, m- me and you, God. We're, gonna, we're about to do this tomorrow. Let's get ready to do it. And Jesus says that in this hour, in this time, he's been given all authority. And because he has all authority, he might be able to give eternal life 
to those who have been given to him. Now that phrase, eternal life, it's one we've probably heard many times, right? It's in John 3.16, that verse everybody knows, um, right? You've heard, most people have heard this verse many times. Even if, even if you're not a Christian, you maybe have heard John 3.16 before. Um, but but the, the phrase, eternal life, I think what we think it means sometimes is not totally what, what the Greek intends for us to hear. So when you hear eternal life, you just think living forever, Right? That's not actually the, the, the sense of the Greek. It's part of it, but, but what it actually, it actually literally translates to life in the age to come. So, so what, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he talks about like being able to be, being, having membership in this new day that's dawning, this new age that is breaking in on earth through Jesus. It means we get to be a part of that. Now, let's tie that to the, the sense of his authority here. I think we do hear politicians or leaders a lot of times who like to say, if you elect me, a new day will come, right? A new era is dawning if you just make me your president or your uh, mayor or whatever, right? Whatever the thing is, a new day is coming. So we, we today like to connect authority and a new, a new era coming today as well. And I think while that doesn't fully capture everything that Jesus is talking about here, I think that that's true for him as well. The new king is coming, the one all authority has been given to him, and because of it, a new day, a new era is coming through him. And that's certainly what Jesus is talking about here, okay? Now, what, what does Jesus want the people who live in this new age to look like? What does he want it to be marked out by? And I think in this prayer, we see what his desire is for it. Let's jump to verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples. He, he starts out the prayer talking specifically about the disciples. But he, he, he takes time to pray also for the people who will come after the disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Okay, that's us, Okay. Through, through the, the chain of the gospel being preached throughout the last 2,000 years, we're a part of the group of people that Jesus is specifically praying for here, which I think is pretty cool. If, if you don't think that's cool, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's really awesome to me, okay? Jesus is actually praying for us in this moment. That the, all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So his prayer for what God wants his power to be used for in this new age is telling. And he repeats it several times in the, book, in, in the prayer. This is not the only place he talks about unity. Yeah, this is just the one I'm drawing up for, to, for, the, for your attention here. But, but he, he's praying for his people to have unity, to be one, to have oneness. All right, and so this is our first application for the sermon today, is that a marker of the kingdom of God is radical unity because Jesus unites the whole church in him. Now, we don't often think of it this way. I think when we think about unity in the church, a lot of times uh, we don't think of it as as a command. We don't think of it as like like an important doctrine for us, for a, a way that we live in the same way that we might think a bunch of other things are. But I actually think, because of what Jesus is saying here, because of what we find in other places in Scripture, that this is an, as important an ethical, ethical command as there is in Scripture, and it's a central marker of the church as much as any other doctrine, as much as any other thing that Christians are known for, I think unity should be in the mix with all those other things. Okay, that's a big statement, but I think that that is a, totally true. Jesus makes us one, and he wants us to live like it. Just like every other command that we're given in Scripture, we're supposed to live like we're one united group of people in the church. Now, 
this is a bit of a challenge for us today. I had a Catholic friend in college, and he liked to point out to me often, and I don't know if this is actually true, I never looked it up myself, but he said, you know, you Protestants have like 10,000 denominations. All you guys do is split up and, and all these little subsets of yourselves, right? And I don't know if that's true or not, but it is certainly true that the church experiences a large amount of sort of separation on all sorts of different issues. It could be like leadership structure. It could be on uh, important theological things, things that are still important, but things we've said are so important that we are not going to associate with those, Christ- those Christians over there. Uh, we separate out into ethics, how we follow Jesus. We separate out into tribal preferences. We separate out into racial uh, groups. And we, we, a lot of times we like to separate out into what's comfortable for ourselves. We like to associate with Christians who are like us. Right? Christians who look like us, who live in the same areas as us, who talk like us, who see the world through the same sort of lens as ourselves. All right? that, that's the ways in which we like to divide ourselves up. Now, this is a reality we live in. Right? I'm not saying that like today, this morning, I'm going to give the blueprint for undoing 2,000 years of the church finding different ways to sort of break itself up. But I am saying that, that we should try to navigate as best as we can with, as our goal, finding unity as much as we possibly can, not just at Res City, but with Christians outside of here as well, seeing ourselves as all part of the same body of Jesus. And our guide is always seeking unity. Okay, but how do we do that? How do, how do we do that well? Because it's not like that these things are just easy to overcome or, or to think through, right? So I want to talk today about the, about the challenges to unity and how we should sort of approach them as Christians. Now, obvi- the obvious challenge, or an unobvious challenge at least, to unity is difference. Differences in opinion, differences in um, makeup of some kind like we were just talking about. And I think we struggle to know what to do with our differences between ourselves today. I don't think it's just a Christian thing. I think it's an American thing. We just don't know how to approach people who are different than us. But you'll be happy to hear that actually difference is essential to unity. It's actually not a threat to unity. It's actually, uh, it's actually a, a huge asset to unity, I think. Okay? It's something that we need to have as long as, we, as long as we see it in a proper way. And so that's our second application today, is that radical unity gives value to our differences. So let me talk about that. First of all, unity isn't uniformity. Okay? That's, the, that's, I think, something we, we, we like to think when we talk about unity is that we just all eliminate our differences and we all look the same. So we do figure out what's the culture that we all fit into, what's the, what's the type of Christian that we all fit into, and we try to squeeze it, we want to squeeze everybody into that box. Okay? We, we want to look the same, we want to think the same, we want to talk the same. But Paul, the apostle, in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about unity in the church, and he does so, I think, he, and he's taking what Jesus has given him, and he's thinking through it in his communities, which have all sorts of unique differences between themselves. He's actually ta- going to talk about how our differences are necessary to make a larger whole. So let's get in, let's dive into that. 1 Corinthians 12, um, we're going to talk through, I think, verses 11 through 26, Okay. Okay, so all of these, and he's talking about different roles here, just to pick up. He's talking about gifts or roles within the church. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, okay? Christ's body, he's saying, is made up of all sorts of different parts. 
We get that analogy, we have bodies too, and we understand that our body is made up of all sorts of different types of uh, organs and, 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 and uh, muscles and, and types of things within our body. We need those things to kind of be brought together to form a body. That's what he's talking about. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So Paul says, the ways that we see the world here in the first century, we like to divide ourselves up into Jew or Gentile, into slave or free, they all have the same spirit. They are all made equal by the giving of the spirit in the church. Now let me translate that into modern language. Maybe we don't think of it today because we don't have the same distinctions. Okay? So we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether black or white or Asian or Hispanic, whether a part of the 1% or middle class or living in poverty. We were all given this, the, the same spirit to drink. Even so, the, the one body is, is made up of one part but not many. The spirit makes us equals. The spirit is the same spirit is given to all those who believe in Jesus so that no matter how society judges them, they all have the same measure and attain to equality with one another. But maybe even equality doesn't go far enough. Maybe the right word is, is partners. We're brought together, we're made complete partners with each other because we're all working towards the same common goal, which is glorifying God. Paul continues, if the, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Now, like I said before, think about it. You can't have a body without some sort of diversity. An eye can't do all the things that your body needs to be done. An eye can't digest food. It can't breathe. It, it can't hear, it can't think, it can't, it can't do all these different things that your body needs in order to survive. It has an essential role, helping you not trip over things, right? But, but it, it can't do everything that the body needs, okay? This is why unity can't be uniformity. It can't be everything looking the same because we need different types of skills and gifts and experiences and cultures to come together to form this one body of Christ. The church doesn't need only the gifts of one type of people. It doesn't need just the gifts of, of white people or men or of people who have the gift of preaching or singing or strategic thinkers. It needs everybody's gifts to come together. It doesn't need to use the same language. It doesn't all need to have the same experiences. It doesn't need to worship God in all the same styles. That wouldn't be unity. That would be uniformity. And Paul is saying, listen, we need all these groups of people to come together to form the body of Christ. So Paul keeps going. He says, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with a special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. So he's saying, like in, a, in a normal body or a normal group of people, you would give honor to the ones who you think are, have some higher societal status. But in this body, the ones who are weaker, we actually find them to be indispensable, to be actually very much needed to what we are as a body. And we treat them with special honor, these parts that are what he calls unpresentable. 
Now, okay, so I like you know, have grown up playing sports in, in my life, and so I've been a part of like lifting weights and different things. And you know how when you go to the gym, you know how there's a bunch of dudes that are over, they're usually dudes, right? They're over in that part of the gym, and they're doing curls, and they're doing um, stuff, they're doing push-ups or bench or whatever, right? They're working on the muscles that everybody sees, the presentable muscles, right? The ones that you can see when you flex different parts of your body that we think are the ones you want to show off, right? So, a few, uh, recently, Julie started doing something called Pilates, which I had no idea what this was until, until she started doing I'd heard of it, but I really didn't know what it was. But Pilates targets these muscles that you don't even know you have to sort of strengthen those because they're actually really important to your body. Muscles no one maybe sees that might seem indispensable to you, but actually when you work to strengthen those, it makes your body as a whole better and stronger. That's the type of parts of the body that Paul is talking about here. Not the ones that are flashy and that everybody sees, but the parts that are kind of maybe hidden or maybe not seen as really important, but actually have this really integral role to kind of hold the body together in ways that no one understands except for Jesus, except for the one who's calling us to pay special attention to them. That's what he's saying. He continues on, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there be Uh, should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So Paul is saying we should be going out of our way to give honor, to give dignity, to give opportunity to the weakest parts, the parts that suffer, the parts that we don't necessarily think of when we think of the church, the parts of the, of the church that society looks on and says, they're not quite as valuable as, the, as these parts, so you should be giving honor or putting these types of people in charge or making them run everything, okay? Uh, we should be looking to the, the, the parts that we might think of as weaker, uh, the parts that we might think of as not as important. We should be looking to use those gifts to lead, to give experiences, good or bad, to, and then to work to comfort them or to work for justice for them. I think that we have a really important example of this that's going on today that we need to draw attention to. Right? I think there, there, there is a, a large degree to which white Christians or the white church have sort of bit, have neglected or been ignorant to the, the, the challenges or the suffering that have been going on to our brothers and sisters of other colors, especially those who are black right now. I think we have not listened to their suffering, to their lamenting, to their praying, to, for their ask for help or for justice to be done. We have been, we, we failed them in sort of just worrying about our own comfort or worrying about the things that are concerning to us. Maybe we've noticed it, but we haven't really done that much about it. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about. If one part of the body is suffering, the whole body should be suffering with it. If one part is in pain, the whole body should be alerted to that and be working to sort of help that part of the body be experiencing wholeness and joy. Unity looks like all of us, in all in our differences, coming together to support the whole body And so that means biblical unity has to mean listening, it has to mean understanding, it has to mean seeking and comforting and honoring those who are weak, who are suffering, who are socially undesirable or socially unpresentable. And it has to have a bigger vision for what the church is or for what Christianity is than just me and Jesus or, or, or being a part of churches that I like that are made up of people that look like me or think like me or talk like me, okay? The church is so much bigger than that. And we have to have that sort of radical vision for being united to the whole church if we're going to get on board with what Jesus is praying for here. Now, this all resonates with where we're at as a culture. And I think because of that, we can sometimes 
sort of unwittingly sort of trade that culture, the cultural version that talks about this, which has some similarities to biblical unity, but also doesn't go as far as it needs to or misses some parts. And so we need to understand the differences or the distinctions. So I want to talk about that today as well now as we continue to hone in on what Jesus and Paul are talking about when they talk about unity. Okay, and this is our, our third application here. Radical unity ascribes value to our differences, but radical unity isn't interested just in assertion of rights or in playing identity politics. So, so let, me, uh, let me unpack what, I, what I'm talking about here. And, and Michelle Lee Barnwell, she's a, a, a scholar who is at Biola in California, has said some really helpful stuff on this, I think, that was really influential, has been really influ- influential for me in the last few years as I've kind of thought about what biblical unity looks like. So I'm gonna read a few quotes from her and unpack them. She says that equality speaks to one's personal privileges and rights, whereas love describes one's willingness to prioritize others. It is vital to see the larger theological purpose of the unity of the community because Paul's overriding concern is not the rights of the individual, but the glory of God as seen through the church. Paul does not deny the importance of rights, but asserts that there is a more transcendent way. So let me unpack what she's saying here, okay? When Paul talks about unity, he's not just talking about asserting rights or finding uh, equality for people. Okay? He's talking about something that, that transcends that in a sense, it goes, that takes that, that and goes further with it. Um, he, our world values diversity, it values rights, and it values equality, but often doesn't value unity, or sometimes it values those things at the expense of unity, I think. All right, equality isn't for unity oftentimes. A lot of times it's just kind of an end in itself. It, a lot of times it says, look at me, respect me, give me what I deserve, but it doesn't sort of have a vision for how to, how do a group of people who all are asserting different rights come together in, in unity, how to come together in common purpose, all right? And, and I think we need to, as a church, get on board with this biblical vision for unity because it's good that we work for quality, but we need biblical unity with that too. We need to attach that sort of vision for coming together in common cause. Not just fighting for rights, but then clashing with other people who may have rights that challenge that or don't agree with it or who are people who don't have the same vision for unity with us. Okay? Uh, unity needs to be our goal. And for, for the Christian, unity is, is built up of Christ-like love. It's built up of a common cause in being loved by Jesus and serving him as king. Okay? Equality doesn't have that unifying factor. Now, Michelle Lee Barnwell, she gives an example of, of what it looks like when clashing rights might come together and unity is the thing that we should be fighting for instead. And she, she goes to 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. So we were in 1 Corinthians 12 a little bit earlier. Paul, just moving a little bit earlier in the letter, in chapter 8, Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth and he's saying, okay, so some of you guys, some of you guys want to assert your rights, your rights of having knowledge about what you should do when it comes to eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's the issue here. And so in the ancient world, you would have your butcher in the ancient world is actually your, your local priest a lot of times. They would make sacrifices uh, with animals to these gods, and then the leftover meat, they would sell at a market. So if you want, the, the, the ancient restaurant was actually just going to some pagan temple and eating some of the meat that had been sacrificed to whatever god or goddess earlier in the day that has now been cooked and, and people are eating. And, and there's a lot of Christians in Corinth who understand, listen, these are not real gods, so this meat is fine. We can go and eat this meat. 
But there are some other Christians in Corinth who, do, for whatever reason, don't have that understanding. And when they see their, their brothers and sisters in the church going and eating that food, they're starting to get confused and tripped up and starting to think, um, are these people worshiping these gods? They're eating this meat that's sacrificed to idols. And so, so Paul talks about it like the, the weak and the strong, those people who know that this, this meat that's being sacrificed to idols is... is um, it's not actually being sacrificed to real gods. He calls them the strong, the ones who have the knowledge. And those who are stumbling, he says, they're the weak ones. They don't have the same knowledge as you. Okay? But Paul doesn't give the answer that we might think he does here. Okay? She, 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 uh, Michelle Lee Barnwell moves on. She says, thus Paul affirms that one may have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but should not act on this right if it causes another believer to stumble. In this example, people are called to give up their privileges for the sake of the gospel and the unity of the church. The willingness to sacrifice for the good of one another is the essence of love in the New Testament. So Paul is actually saying here to this group of people, at this point in time right now, you guys, unity trumps the rights that you might think you have. Okay, unity is, a, is better right now. Serving your brother and sisters who, who, are, who are weaker in this instance is more important than you just asserting your rights and telling them that, that you should get to do whatever you want because you're right. He's saying, no, I have a better vision for you, and that's unity. That's love for one another, which means giving that up so that they may not stumble. Now, that might sound crazy to many modern people with this statement, and you might ask, and I think this is a good question to ask, how, do, uh, how are marginalized people then going to get heard in, in this way? Like, how do we make sure people are heard then if we're, if we're telling everybody to be willing, at least willing, to give up your rights or, or sacrifice for the good of everybody else? And Paul's answer is that a unified church with people that are represented all over the place from different backgrounds, different uh, cultures, different things, um, all are giving up their rights for the common good and mutual love, this will actually do more to give dignity and care to the body than individuals asserting their rights. Because everyone is thinking not about themselves, but about everybody else. Everyone is seeking out the good of the people who are not like them or not just them. Everyone needs to have this vision of love. And here, unity is mutual love. It's focused on the same thing. It's focused on the love of Jesus who calls us to unity, the body and of other people. And it's not focused on love of self, not just focused on love of your rights, not just focused on love of, of what might make you unique. Okay? It's focused on the good of the whole body and what, what is good for everybody else, not just you. And so the tendons, the ligaments, the, the things that hold this body together is, is love for Christ and love for the body. So what does this all look like for us today? I think it starts with that we need to celebrate our differences in the church and then celebrate others' differences. We need to ex- celebrate people's different experiences, their cultures, their gifts, their skin colors, the things that make us unique and diverse as a church. We need to celebrate all of those things, not just pick the ones that we think are best and celebrate and get excited about those. All right? We, we should look at them as necessary to build up the body of Jesus. And we as a church need, and I mean, and by need I mean we can't live without, to be fully the church of God. We need men and women. We need people of all races and cultures. We need rich and poor. We need celibate or single and married people. We need kids and we need parents. We need people from all sorts of across the spectrums of the different, different uh, camps within Christianity, whether it's Pentecostals, Baptists, Mennonites, Calvinists, Arminians, Reformed, Catholics, whatever it is, we need all these people to be coming together and bringing their unique sort of, uh, their, their uniqueness to, to make the body of Christ full and whole. 
But we can't take our differences and try to pit them against each other to try to gain something at the expense of others. It means we have to listen to those who are hurting. We have to grieve with them. It means we have to lay down our comfort, our privileges, our rights, all of us. And none of this is easy, okay? It's going to take work. It's going to be hard to do. It's not always clear what is best to do for unity in a given situation. Christians might disagree sometimes on what the best course for unity might be. Okay, that means conversation, it means prayer, it means seeking God out. And on top of that, the Christian life is contested. The, the, whole, the whole Christian life that we live is contested. We are fighting our flesh, we're fighting our comfort constantly, we're fighting ignorance, we're fighting lack of awareness, we're fighting centuries of accrued layers of sin, of, of racism and injustice that have sort of uh, crept into the church like cockroaches and infested it, right? That's the kind of stuff we're fighting against as a church. And it's tough. It's not easy, all right? We are going to be in this battle for our whole lives, okay? But we need to commit ourselves to radical unity as a church. We need to commit ourselves to radical prayer, radical endurance, radical worship, because it's worth it. It's worth it to have that vision for unity. And we know we'll be successful in that as, as we pursue it, because we have Jesus' power and his example that are, are, are fulfilling us in this. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." We have a perfect model of this love, of this seeking out unity in Jesus, the one who has all the authority, the one who is calling us to live in this kingdom, this new age that's dawning that we're a part of. We're being called to live within that, and and the one who's calling us to live within that is the one who sets the example for us of of laying down uh, for the good of those who he loves. And this takes us back to the beginning, that Jesus is about to die on the cross. That's what we're waiting for him to do right now, right? We're, we're waiting for him to, to move. And the next part of the, uh, we're, next week we're going to start getting into that crucifixion narrative. Okay? Th- this is what Jesus is about to do. And, and, and this, is what he's, this is what he's about to do it for, is to make us united with one another. So we have to take that seriously. Our king didn't say, you know, I want to I maintain all of, all of my rights, all the things that I want to have, and I'm not going to sacrifice myself for the good of those uh, who, who need it. He's willing to give up in order to uh, bring, uh, bring equality, bring fairness to those who, who are uh, beneath him. And that's the, the, the model that we follow. And we're fueled by that sacrificial love. He doesn't just give us an example, but he gives us power with his spirit. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a little bit about abiding with Jesus. We've been talking about uh, knowing him and being connected to him. Julie talked about that last week. I touched a little bit on the Holy Spirit the week before that. We need to have radical abiding in Jesus if we're going to have radical unity with one another. Okay? I think that's a reality we need to deal with is how much we need to be connected to Jesus so that we can be connected to one another. All right, the, the connection between unity, diversity, inclusion, and equality in the church, and, and, and love in the church, and abiding with Jesus, on the other hand, those are, that's an essential connection. We need to have those two together if we're going to live this out. Okay, so we're going to move into a, a time of worship now. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're actually going to take communion uh, while Zach and Heather lead us in worship. Let me pray first, and then I'll lead us in, in communion. God, we thank you that you did not uh, treat um, 
treat, treat yourself and, and the power and, and the equality and the rights that you had as something to be attained uh, and not used as for the good of us, Lord. You, you emptied yourself of those in order that we may uh, be raised up to a place that we were not at before in love and in unity, God. I pray that you would help us to, to live out that call for unity, for love, for, for equality, for justice within the church that you've called us to be a part of, Lord. Give us creativity, give us, give us endurance, and give us love uh, above all that for one another, Lord. Help us to live out that unity that Jesus prays for, that Paul talks about in his letters, God. And help us to, to do it, to, to start here at Res City and to, and to move out in different places, Lord. We pray for this, this power, um, and we thank you for your example and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.